Today's first reading will consist of various passages from Amos and Proverbs. We will begin from Amos 5, verses 14 to 15. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. Just as you have said, hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offences. Fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to advice. Fools show their anger at once, but the prudent ignore an insult. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness speaks deceitfully. Rash words are like a like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue lasts only a moment. Deceit is in the mind of those who plan evil, but those who counsel peace have joy. If your enemies are hungry, bring them bread to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink. For you will heap coals of fire on their heads, and the Lord will reward you. Today's second reading is from Romans 12, verses 9 to 21. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not lag, lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, uh, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought of what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap coals, burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you have a motto for life? You know, one of those phrases or mantras that you find yourself repeating over and over, despite the fact that you already know it and have thoroughly internalized it. Winston Churchill's was famously abbreviated to KBO, which I'll leave you to look up for yourselves because I don't want to get into trouble on a Sunday morning again. But there are lots of other options to choose from. When I was at school, I was frequently told that you can't win if you don't play the game, which, as a rugby-hating pupil, I swiftly amended to the much more pragmatic and enduring personal mantra of, if you can't win, don't play the game. 
And then, that's true, I kind of say that to myself a lot. Then there's the calls to perseverance, such as, if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again, which sits nicely alongside, don't let the what-sits grind you down, which I'm modifying, of course, in accordance with that other personal favourite of mine, don't get into trouble on a Sunday morning again. Well, I could go on with any number of further mottos that inspire us to keep putting one foot in front of the other, as the saying goes. But there's a downside to all this as well. Some of us here will have taken deep into ourselves far more destructive messages, which surface in our psyches with monotonous regularity. I'm not good enough. I'm so useless. They don't like me. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Sometimes the voice in our head does us no favours, dressing up lies as truth and tormenting us from within. Well, one of the most destructive mantras of our society, which permeates all of our lives in one way or another, is the assertion that we have an absolute right to revenge. It's often dressed up as talk of justice. The deep desire to have our wrongs righted lies at the heart of so much of our communal narrative. We live for, we long for, the outworking of what seems like a universal and unquestionable truth, that someone, somewhere, must be made to pay. From the criminal justice system to the witch hunt and the lynch mob, the mantra that someone must be made to pay has become the bedrock of so much that we hold dear. And it is against this that I want to draw our attention to Paul's words in the last verse of our reading this morning from his letter to the Romans. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Interestingly, for a passage which doesn't actually mention Jesus, these few verses from Romans 12 are one of the closest places Paul gets to referencing the words of Jesus as we know them from the Gospels. The parallels with the Sermon on the Mount are striking, and this final verse could pretty much stand alone as a one-sentence summary or motto of the life and teaching of Jesus. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is radical stuff. And it was every bit as countercultural in the first century as it is in the 21st. Humans are well practiced at trying to overcome evil with evil. And we're very good at convincing ourselves that, contrary to the popular saying, two wrongs do indeed make a right. The ideology of, you've hurt me, so you must pay, is very compelling. And it determines everything from our interpersonal relationships to our international politics. Meeting evil with good is perceived 
as weakness and foolishness. At school, we're often told that the bullies only understand one language, their own. And so in self-defense, we learn to speak their language well. But then we carry that conviction into our adult lives, and so we vote for a nuclear deterrent and for a strong defensive military capability and for proactive strikes against rogue nations who are rattling their sabers a bit too loudly. And oh my goodness, what's going to happen in Korea? Well, if we're to listen to Paul on this one, we might need a rethink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, of course, Paul isn't speaking in a vacuum here, and neither was Jesus when he suggested to his disciples that those who are merciful peacemakers are those blessed by God. The Jewish tradition had a long history in what's known as the wisdom literature of wrestling with the futility of violence and of trying to work out what the appropriate response to another person's aggression should be. And Paul, author of Romans, highly educated Pharisee that he was, consciously echoes this Jewish wisdom tradition in the way he shapes the passage that we're looking at this morning. The little miscellany of verses that we heard earlier from Amos and Proverbs give us an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. So, in statements like, seek good and not evil so that you may live, Hate evil and love good. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offences. Fools show their anger at once. Deceit is in the mind of those who plan evil, but those who counsel peace have joy. This is in the background to the kind of stuff Paul gives shape to in Romans. It's an ancient call to another way of living where the narratives of retributive violence are challenged and rejected, where the right to revenge is foregone and where payment for wrongdoing is released. So my challenge for us this morning is deceptively simple. But it is also incredibly demanding. It is for us to commit ourselves individually and communally to living our lives by Paul's series of statements, mottos, and aphorisms that we meet in this passage from Romans, and to allow the Spirit of Christ to bring those words of life to life in our lives. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, for Paul, it starts, of course, with love. He says in verses 9 to 10, Let love be genuine. Love one another with mutual affection. Paul begins his great call to a new way of living by grounding himself in the one force on the earth capable of instigating the kind of transformation he has in mind. Genuine love which extends beyond the self to embrace the other. 
And just as Jesus paired love of God with love of neighbor, so Paul pairs the genuineness of love with genuine affection for and honor of the other. Love cannot be genuine unless it goes beyond the self to embrace others. And it isn't until we internalize the truth that God loves all his children equally that we're able to begin to loosen our grip on the inner conviction that there's something unique or special about our own place in the heart of the divine. But once we dispel the myth that God loves us more than he loves them, then the path is opened for the radical reorientation of behavior that is to come. It all starts with love. But Paul knows that even with genuine love in our hearts, this will not be an easy path. So in a biblical precursor to Churchill's famous injunction to keep buggering on, oh, done it again, Paul tells his readers to be zealous and ardent and patient and perseverant. This is the task we're called to. But as my father often says to me, Simon, no one ever said it was going to be easy. Remaining hopeful in the face of suffering, being zealous in serving others, persevering in ardent prayer, these are no easy tasks. And neither is the topic that Paul addresses next, financial generosity. It takes a conscious decision to review our giving to the community of God's people. But Paul is clear that we have a responsibility before God to contribute to, as he calls it, the needs of the saints. In a church like Bloomsbury, the need is always before us. From the homeless and the vulnerable that we welcome day by day through the doors of this building to the more structural needs that are met through this place, if we do not share between us the responsibility of keeping the project going, it will fail. But of course, it's not just about money. Because Paul pairs money with hospitality. If money is the mechanism, then hospitality is the method. And whether it's welcoming people into our own homes or to the meal table downstairs here in the Friendship Centre, whether it's a Sunday lunch or a Tuesday lunch, or it's the evening centre or the night shelter, or wherever else it is that we extend hospitality, our commitment to hospitality is a spiritual discipline and a sacrificial calling, every bit as demanding as the call to ardent prayer or the call to financial giving. One of our issues that we're facing with our Sunday lunches is that the number of people attending them from the church community is declining to the extent that on some Sundays those who have been given a free ticket make up the majority of those who attend. And I do get it. I mean, I really do. Who wouldn't want to go to a nearby restaurant with close friends for a nice meal after church on a Sunday? Who wouldn't rather get on with their day already carved out of a busy life? with too many pressures and not enough time. And I do get it that the food isn't always everybody's cup of tea, but I don't think these are the point. If we are to offer hospitality that welcomes the stranger and speaks to them of their inherent value as dearly loved children of God, then that involves actually extending hospitality, which is more than just paying for them to have a meal 
and it's more than just cooking them a meal. I mean, we wouldn't invite someone to dinner at our house, serve them their food that we'd prepared for them, and then leave them to it whilst we went elsewhere, making sure there was somebody to mind them and make sure the door was locked when they left. That's not hospitality. It might be charity. But as I argued in my series of sermons on toxic charity earlier in the summer, we're not called to charity. We're called to sacrificial hospitality, which means extending a loving welcome to those we find difficult. As Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans in our passage from this morning, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Verse 16. But Paul then goes even further than this, just in case this passage wasn't difficult enough for us all before. Loving one another means that we have to love those who we would think of as our enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Live peaceably with all. This is where we start to find ourselves at that most difficult of Paul's challenges in this passage, the call to nonviolence. Sometimes people characterize nonviolence as the easy, passive, or even cowardly response to conflict. I think nothing could be further from the truth. Choosing to not bite back is one of the most difficult choices we can make. It is so utterly counterintuitive to all that we think we know about how to live in human society. And we can only get to the point of proactive nonviolence once we have fully internalized all that has gone before. We have to follow this passage through to get to the end with conviction. It's only once we have learned to love the other as we love ourselves and have learned to persevere in prayerful service of the other through persecution and opposition, it's only once we have learned to hold lightly to our money, our time and our status, only after all of that are we ready to hear the command, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And here I have my big, biggest problem with this passage, and it's this. The vengeance of God doesn't look much like vengeance as I understand it or want to see it. Leaving room for the wrath of God is intensely problematic because God's wrath is not like my wrath. And he is not angry at the same things that attract my personal fury. I want to take my revenge but God takes the liberty of forgiveness. I want to hate those who do evil, but God hates the effect that evil has, not only on those to whom it is done, but also on those who do it. The great scandal of God's wrath and vengeance is that they end up looking a lot like forgiveness. But nonetheless, Paul tells his readers very clearly that revenge is not theirs to take. This short passage is a one-paragraph summons to an entirely alternative way of being human. 
I find it very interesting that this is primarily a passage which emphasizes orthopraxy rather than orthodoxy. For those of you whose Greek is a bit sketchy, orthopraxy is right action, orthodoxy is right belief. And this is a passage about right action far more than it is a passage about right belief. The central message of this passage is not believe in Christ. It's far more practical than that. It's just be like Christ. So as we come to the close of this sermon, I want to come back to the observation I made earlier, that our passage from Romans doesn't actually mention Jesus. God gets a look in a couple of times, but not Jesus. I have a kind of rule in preaching, which is that a church sermon really ought to mention Jesus, at least somewhere along the line, which is probably why I feel the need to return to this again at the end. I think that Jesus... Both his life and his teaching firmly lie behind Paul's reinvention of the Jewish wisdom tradition here. There are echoes of the Sermon on the Mount, and the life that Paul is calling his readers to is one firmly patterned after the life of Jesus. But he doesn't need to spell this out. Here is a call to living Christianly, which is accessible to all including those who don't consider themselves to be the disciples of Jesus. It's as if the person and example of Jesus has opened for Paul a doorway to a new and better way of being human, which then transcends the cultic and cultural boundaries that might otherwise surround it. So here's the thing, and please don't take this the wrong way. I don't really care what you believe. Rather, it's what you do that matters. As Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, a good tree will bear good fruit, and a bad tree will bear bad fruit. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And by your fruit you shall be known. Little Christianity has spent far too long defending what people think and believe about the guy who started it all. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think, you know, belief is important. I've got a PhD in theology, and, you know, you don't pursue this stuff without thinking it matters. But when it comes down to it, we have spent far too much time defending orthodoxy to the point where we have all too frequently lost sight of the message that Jesus left us, which is to live like Christ. When God spoke salvation, he spoke the word becoming flesh, which is Jesus Christ. God's words of salvation are found in the life and example of Jesus. He did not dictate us a book and tell us to follow it and defend it. He spoke a Messiah and asked us to follow him. The message of Jesus is that a door is now open to a different way of living, a new way of being which is good news for all those who hear it, because it releases us from those ultimately destructive mantras and mottos and compulsions and convictions that drive us into our patterns of violence and retribution. The call is very clear. It is to live like Jesus. It is to not be overcome by evil but to overcome evil with good. We're going to spend some time praying for the world and the community around us.
Lord, we come to you not knowing what to say, not knowing how to pray, but coming with a hope and with a trust in you. We look at the world around us, it confuses us, it frightens us, but we also see your hope and your truth, and we are challenged to bring your kingdom here. We pray this week for those affected by the Hurricane Irma, knowing that it is the poor and those on the bottom rungs of society that will be affected most. We pray for those that are in fear at the moment, those that have already been hit and are trying to pick up the pieces. We pray for loving response from the world around and guide us how we should respond. We look to Myanmar and what's happening there with the Rohingya. We pray for wisdom for the leaders to speak out against atrocities. We pray for those that are being persecuted. We look to Mexico and more natural disasters and the earthquake that hit and those that have lost their lives and their possessions and everything around them. Pray for your courage to find that place, your peace to find those people. And we look at the political stage and the tensions that seem to be rising on all fronts. And we ask for your wisdom. We ask for you to be the guide for your peace to be what overcomes. And as we look around with confusion and fear, we ask Spirit to sustain us, to keep us going, because we will not be overcome by disaster, and we will overcome disaster with relief and love. We will respond to your ancient call to live a different way. We look to our own country. We see austerity and Brexit causing upheaval and uncertainty. We pray for those that will be affected most. Those that are already hurting, already struggling, that feel oppressed. We think of this new political season and the first, the PM questions. And our leaders in this country, we pray for them. We lift them to you. And we look at the start of a new term for new beginnings. For those starting new schools, new school years, university, college, 
in their hopes for the future. We pray for your joy and your excitement in new possibilities. We ask Jesus to redeem us, to give us hope, to enable us to see new things, because we will not be overcome by powers and principalities, but overcome powers with peace and love. And we will respond to your ancient call to live a different way. And we look to our own community. We look forward to the future of Bloomsbury, to this family. We pray for eyes to look forward with hope and excitement. We pray for creativity as we think about mission and ministry and growth moving forward. Give us courage, give us strength, and give us wisdom. And we hold in our hearts those who are not with us today, who are unwell or away. And we lift them to you. We pray for healing and for love. And ask you, God, to create us anew each day. Declaring that we will not become overcome with despondency, but overcome despondency with faith and love. We will respond to your ancient call to live a different way, to live like Christ, your spoken Messiah. We will follow him. Because we will not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen.